Section 44 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 12, Chapter 11. The disasters which befell Jones on his departure for Coventry, with the sage remarks of Partridge. No road can be plainer than that from the place where they now were to Coventry, and though neither Jones nor Partridge nor the guide had ever travelled it before, it would have been almost impossible to have missed their way, had it not been for the two reasons mentioned in the conclusion of the last chapter. These two circumstances, however, happening both unfortunately to intervene, our travellers deviated into a much less frequented track, and after riding full six miles, instead of arriving at the stately spires of Coventry, they found themselves still in a very dirty lane, where they saw no symptoms of approaching the suburbs of a large city. Jones now declared that they must certainly have lost their way, but this the guide insisted upon was impossible, a word which, in common conversation, is often used to signify not only improbable, but often what is really very likely, and sometimes what hath certainly happened. An hyperbolical violence, like that which is so frequently offered to the words infinite and eternal, by the former of which it is usual to express a distance of half a yard, and by the latter a duration of five minutes. And thus it is as usual to assert the impossibility of losing what is already actually lost. This was, in fact, the case at present, for notwithstanding all the confident assertions of the lad to the contrary, it is certain there were no more in the right road to Coventry than the fraudulent, griping, cruel, canting miser is in the right road to heaven. It is not perhaps easy for a reader who hath never been in those circumstances to imagine the horror with which darkness, rain, and wind fill persons who have lost their way in the night, and who consequently have not the pleasant prospect of warm fires, dry clothes, and other refreshments to support their minds in struggling with the inclemencies of the weather. A very imperfect idea of this horror will, however, serve sufficiently to account for the conceits which now filled the head of Partridge, and which we shall presently be obliged to open. Jones grew more and more positive that they were out of their road, and the boy himself at last acknowledged he believed that they were not in the right road to Coventry, though he affirmed at the same time it was impossible they should have missed the way. But Partridge was of a different opinion. He said, When they first set out he imagined some mischief or other would happen. Did you not observe, sir, said he to Jones, that old woman who stood at the door just as you was taking horse? I wish you had given her a small matter with all my heart, for she said then you might repent it and at that very instant it began to rain, and the wind hath continued rising ever since. Whatever some people may think, I am very certain it is in the power of witches to raise the wind whenever they please. I have seen it happen very often in my time, and if ever I saw a witch in all my life, that old woman was certainly one. I thought so to myself at that very time, and if I had had any halfpence in my pocket, I would have given her some, for to be sure it is always good to be charitable to those sort of people, for fear what may happen." and many a person hath lost his cattle by saving a halfpenny. Jones, though he was horridly vexed at the delay which this mistake was like to occasion in his journey, could not help smiling at the superstition of his friend, whom an accident now greatly confirmed in his opinion. This was a tumble from his horse, by which, however, he received no other injury than what the dirt conferred on his clothes. Partridge had no sooner recovered his legs than he appealed to his fall as conclusive evidence of all he had asserted. But Jones, finding he was unhurt, answered with a smile, 
This witch of yours, Partridge, is a most ungrateful jade, and doth not, I find, distinguish her friends from others in her resentment. If the old lady had been angry with me for neglecting her, I don't see why she should tumble you from your horse, after all the respect you have expressed for her. It is ill-jesting, cries Partridge, with people who have power to do these things, for they are often very malicious. I remember a farrier who provoked one of them, by asking her when the time she had bargained with the devil for would be out, and within three months from that very day one of his best cows was drowned. Nor was she satisfied with that. For a little time afterwards he lost a barrel of best drink, for the old witch pulled out the spigot and let it run all over the cellar, the very first evening he had tapped it to make merry with some of his neighbors. In short, nothing ever thrived with him afterwards, for she worried the poor man so that he took to drinking, and in a year or two his stock was seized, and he and his family are now come to the parish. The guide, and perhaps his horse too, were both so attentive to this discourse, that either through want of care or by the malice of the witch, they were now both sprawling in the dirt. Partridge entirely imputed this fall, as he had done his own, to the same cause. He told Mr. Jones, it would certainly be his turn next, and earnestly entreated him to return back, and find out the old woman, and pacify her. We shall very soon, added he, reach the inn, for though we have seemed to go forward, I am very certain we are in the identical place in which we were an hour ago, and I dare swear, if it was daylight, we might now see the inn we set out from. Instead of returning any answer to this sage advice, Jones was entirely attentive to what had happened to the boy, who received no other hurt than what had before befallen Partridge, and which his clothes very easily bore, as they had been for many years inured to the like. He soon regained his side-saddle, and by the hearty curses and blows which he bestowed on his horse, quickly satisfied Mr. Jones that no harm was done. Chapter 12 Relates that Mr. Jones continued his journey, contrary to the advice of Partridge, with what happened on that occasion. They now discovered a light at some distance, to the great pleasure of Jones, and to the no small terror of Partridge, who firmly believed himself to be bewitched, and that this light was a jack-with-a-lantern, or somewhat more mischievous. But how were these fears increased, when, as they approached nearer to this light, or lights, as they now appeared, they heard a confused sound of human voices, of singing, laughing, and hollowing, together with a strange noise that seemed to proceed from some instruments, but could hardly be allowed the name of music. Indeed, to favour a little the opinion of Partridge, it might very well be called Music Bewitched. It is impossible to conceive a much greater degree of horror than what now seized on Partridge, the contagion of which had reached the postboy, who had been very attentive to many things that the other had uttered. He now therefore joined in petitioning Jones to return, saying he firmly believed what Partridge had just before said, that though the horses seemed to go on, they had not moved a step forwards during at least the last half-hour. Jones could not help smiling, in the midst of his vexation, at the fears of these poor fellows. "'Either we advance,' says he, "'towards the lights, or the lights have advanced toward us, for we are now at a very little distance from them. But how can either of you be afraid of a set of people who appear only to be merry-making?' "'Merry-making, sir?' cries Partridge. "'Who could be merry-making at this time of night, and in such a place, and such weather? They can be nothing but ghosts or witches, or some evil spirits or other, that's certain.' "'Let them be what they will,' cries Jones. "'I am resolved to go up to them and inquire the way to Coventry. "'All witches, Partridge, are not such ill-natured hags "'as that we had the misfortune to meet with last.' "'Oh, Lord, sir,' cries Partridge, "'there is no knowing what humour they will be in. "'To be sure, it is always best to be civil to them. "'But what if we should meet with something worse than witches, "'with evil spirits themselves? "'Pray, sir, be advised. Pray, sir, do.' 
If you had read so many terrible accounts as I have of these matters, you would not be so foolhardy. The Lord knows whither we have got already, or whither we are going, for sure such darkness was never seen upon earth, and I question whether it can be darker in the other world. Jones put forwards as fast as he could, notwithstanding all these hints and cautions, and poor Partridge was obliged to follow, for though he hardly dared to advance, he dared still less to stay behind by himself. At length they arrived at the place whence the lights and different noises had issued. This Jones perceived to be no other than a barn, where a great number of men and women were assembled, and diverting themselves with much apparent jollity. Jones no sooner appeared before the great doors of the barn, which were open, than a masculine and very rough voice from within demanded, Who was there? To which Jones gently answered, A friend, and immediately asked the road to Coventry. If you are a friend, cries another of the men in the barn, you had better alight till the storm is over, for indeed it was now more violent than ever. You are very welcome to put up your horse, for there is sufficient room for him at the end of the barn. You are very obliging, returned Jones, and I will accept your offer for a few minutes, whilst the rain continues, and here are two more who will be glad of the same favour. This was accorded with more good will than was accepted, for Partridge would rather have submitted to the utmost inclemency of the weather than have trusted to the clemency of those whom he took for hobgoblins, and the poor postboy was now infected with the same apprehensions but they were both obliged to follow the example of Jones, the one because he durst not leave his horse, and the other because he feared nothing so much as being left by himself. Had this history been writ in the days of superstition, I should have had too much compassion for the reader to have left him so long in suspense, whether Beelzebub or Satan was about actually to appear in person, with all his hellish retinue. But as these doctrines are at present very unfortunate, and have but few if any believers, I have not been much aware of conveying any such terrors. To say truth, the whole furniture of the infernal regions hath long been appropriated by the managers of playhouses, who seem lately to have laid them by as rubbish, capable only of affecting the upper gallery, a place in which few of our readers ever sit. However, though we do not suspect raising any great terror on this occasion, we have reason to fear some other apprehensions may here arise in our reader, into which we would not willingly betray him. I mean that we are going to take a voyage into fairyland, and introduce a set of beings into our history which scarce any one was ever childish enough to believe, though many have been foolish enough to spend their time in writing and reading their adventures. To prevent, therefore, any such suspicion so prejudicial to the credit of an historian, who professes to draw his materials from nature only, we shall now proceed to acquaint the reader who those people were whose sudden appearance had struck such terrors into Partridge, and had more than half frightened the postboy, and had a little surprised even Mr. Jones himself. The people then assembled in this barn were no other than a company of Egyptians, or, as they are vulgarly called, gypsies, and they were now celebrating the wedding of one of their society. It is impossible to conceive a happier set of people than appeared here to be met together. The utmost mirth, indeed, showed itself in every countenance, nor was their ball totally void of all order and decorum. Perhaps it had more than a country assembly is sometimes conducted with, for these people are subject to a formal government and laws of their own, and all pay obedience to one great magistrate, whom they call their king. Greater plenty, likewise, was nowhere to be seen than what flourished in this barn. Here was indeed no nicety nor elegance, nor did the keen appetite of the guests require any. Here was a good store of bacon, fowls, and mutton, to which every one present provided better sauce himself than the best and dearest French cook can prepare. 
Aeneas is not described under more consternation in the temple of Juno, dum stupet obtutuque heret defixus in uno, than was our hero at what he saw in this barn. While he was looking everywhere round him with astonishment, a venerable person approached him with many friendly salutations, rather of too hearty a kind to be called courtly. This was no other than the king of the gypsies himself. He was very little distinguished in dress from his subjects, nor had he any regalia of majesty to support his dignity. And yet there seemed, as Mr. Jones said, to be somewhat in his air which denoted authority, and inspired the beholders with an idea of awe and respect. Though all this was perhaps imaginary in Jones, and the truth may be that such ideas are incident to power, and almost inseparable from it. There was somewhat in the open countenance and courteous behaviour of Jones which, being accompanied with much comeliness of person, greatly recommended him at first sight to every beholder. These were, perhaps, a little heightened in the present instance by that profound respect which he paid to the king of the gypsies, the moment he was acquainted with his dignity, and which was the sweeter to his gypsian majesty, as he was not used to receive such homage from any but his own subjects. The king ordered a table to be spread with the choicest of their provisions for his accommodation, and having placed himself at his right hand, his majesty began to discourse with our hero in the following manner. "'Me doubt not, sir, but you have often seen some of my people, who are what you call de parties détachés, for they go about everywhere. But me fancy you imagine not we be so inconsiderable body as we be, and maybe you will be surprised more when you hear the gypsy be as orderly and well-governed people as any upon face of the earth. Me have honour, as me say, to be their king, and no monarch can boast of more dutiful subject, nay, no more affectionate. How far me deserve their goodwill, me no say, but this me can say, that me never design anything but to do them good. Me shall no do boast of that neither, for what can me do otherwise than consider of the good of those poor people who go about all day to give me always the best of what they get? They love and honour me, therefore, because me do love and take care of them. That is all, me know no other reason. About a thousand or two thousand year ago, me cannot tell to a year or two, as can neither write nor read, there was a great what you call a revolution among the gypsy, for there was the lord gypsy in those days, and this lord did quarrel with one another about the place. But the king of the gypsy did demolish them all, and made all his subjects equal with each other. And since that time they have agreed very well, for they did not think of being king, and maybe it be better for them as they be. For me assure you, it be very troublesome thing to be king, and always to do justice. May have often wish to be the private gypsy when me have been forced to punish my dear friend and relation. For though we never put to death, our punishments be very severe. They make the gypsy ashamed of themselves, and that be very terrible punishment. May have scarce ever known the gypsy so punish to harm any more. The king then proceeded to express some wonder that there was no such punishment as shame in other governments, upon which Jones assured him to the contrary, for that there were many crimes for which shame was inflicted by the English laws, and that it was indeed one consequence of all punishment. "'That be very strange,' said the king, "'for me know and hears good deal of your people, though me no live among them, and me have often heard that shame is the consequence and the cause, too, of many of your rewards.' Are your rewards and punishment, then, the same thing? 
While his majesty was thus discoursing with Jones, a sudden uproar arose in the barn, and as it seems upon this occasion, the courtesy of these people had by degrees removed all the apprehensions of Partridge, and he was prevailed upon not only to stuff himself with their food, but to taste some of their liquors, which by degrees entirely expelled all fear from his composition, and in its stead introduced much more agreeable sensations. A young female gipsy, more remarkable for her wit than her beauty, had decoyed the honest fellow aside, pretending to tell his fortune. Now when they were alone together in a remote part of the barn, whether it proceeded from the strong liquor, which is never so apt to inflame inordinate desire as after moderate fatigue, or whether the fair gipsy herself threw aside the delicacy and decency of her sex, and tempted the youth partridge with express solicitations, but they were discovered in a very improper manner by the husband of the gipsy, who, from jealousy, it seems, had kept a watchful eye over his wife, and had dogged her to the place, where he found her in the arms of her gallant. To the great confusion of Jones, Partridge was now hurried before the king, who heard the accusation, and likewise the culprit's defence, which was indeed very trifling, for the poor fellow was confounded by plain evidence which appeared against him, and had very little to say for himself. His majesty, then turning towards Jones, said, "'Sir, you have heard what they say.' What punishment do you think your man deserve? Jones answered, He was sorry for what had happened, and that Partridge should make the husband all the amends in his power. He said he had very little money about him at that time, and putting his hand into his pocket, offered the fellow a guinea, to which he immediately answered, He hoped his honour would not think of giving him less than five. This sum, after some altercation, was reduced to two, and Jones, having stipulated for the full forgiveness of both Partridge and the wife, was going to pay the money when his majesty, restraining his hand, turned to the witness and asked him, at what time he had discovered the criminals. To which he answered that he had been desired by the husband to watch the motions of his wife from her first speaking to the stranger, and that he had never lost sight of her afterwards till the crime had been committed, if the husband was with him all that time in this lurking place. To which he answered in the affirmative. His Egyptian majesty then addressed himself to the husband as follows. May be sorry to see any gypsy that have no more honour than to sell the honour of his wife for money. If you had the love for your wife, you would have prevented this matter, and not endeavour to make her the whore that you might discover her. Me do order that you have no money given to you, for you deserve punishment, not reward. Me do order, therefore, that you be the infamous gypsy, and do wear a pair of horns upon your forehead for one month, and that your wife be called the whore, and pointed at all that time, for you be the infamous gypsy, but she be no less the infamous whore. The gypsies immediately proceeded to execute the sentence, and left Jones and Partridge alone with his majesty. Jones greatly applauded the justice of the sentence, upon which the king, turning to him, said, "'Me believe you be surprised, for you suppose you have very bad opinion of my people. Me suppose you think us all thieves.' "'I must confess, sir,' said Jones, "'I have not heard so favourable an account of them as they seem to deserve.' "'We will tell you,' said the king, "'how the difference is between you and us. "'My people rob your people, and your people rob one another.' Jones afterwards proceeded very gravely to sing forth the happiness of those subjects who live under such a magistrate. Indeed, their happiness appears to have been so complete that we are aware lest some advocate for arbitrary power should hereafter quote the case of those people, as an instance of the great advantages which attend that government above all others.' And here we will make a concession, which would not perhaps have been expected from us, 
that no limited form of government is capable of rising to the same degree of perfection, or of producing the same benefits to society with this. Mankind have never been so happy as when the greatest part of the then known world was under the dominion of a single master, and this state of their felicity continued during the reigns of five successive princes. This was the true era of the Golden Age, and the only Golden Age which ever had any existence, unless in the warm imaginations of the poets, from the expulsion of from Eden down to this day. In reality, I know but of one solid objection to absolute monarchy, the only defect in which excellent constitution seems to be, the difficulty of finding any man adequate to the office of an absolute monarch, for this indispensably requires three qualities very difficult as it appears from history, to be found in princely natures. First, a sufficient quantity of moderation in the prince, to be contented with all the power which is possible for him to have. Secondly, enough of wisdom to know his own happiness. And thirdly, goodness sufficient to support the happiness of others, when not only compatible with, but instrumental to his own. Now if an absolute monarch, with all these great and rare qualifications, should be allowed capable of conferring the greatest good on society, it must be surely granted, on the contrary, that absolute power, vested in the hands of one who is deficient in them all, is likely to be attended with no less a degree of evil. In short, our own religion furnishes us with adequate ideas of the blessing, as well as curse, which may attend absolute power. The pictures of heaven and of hell will place a very lively image of both before our eyes. For though the prince of the latter can have no power but what he originally derives from the omnipotent sovereign in the former, yet it plainly appears from scripture that absolute power in his infernal dominions is granted to their diabolical ruler. This is indeed the only absolute power which can by scripture be derived from heaven. If, therefore, the several tyrannies upon earth can prove any title to a divine authority, it must be derived from this original grant to the prince of darkness and these subordinate deputations must consequently come immediately from him whose stamp they so expressly bear. To conclude, as the examples of all ages show us that mankind in general desire power only to do harm, and when they obtain it, use it for no other purpose, it is not consonant with even the least degree of prudence to hazard an alteration, where our hopes are poorly kept in countenance by only two or three exceptions out of a thousand instances to alarm our fears. In this case it will be much wiser to submit to a few inconveniencies arising from the dispassionate deafness of laws, than to remedy them by applying to the passionate open ears of a tyrant. Nor can the example of the gypsies, though possibly they may have long been happy under this form of government, be here urged, since we must remember the very material respect in which they differ from all other people, and to which perhaps this their happiness is entirely owing namely, that they have no false honours among them, and that they look on shame as the most grievous punishment in the world. CHAPTER Thirteen: A DIALOGUE BETWEEN JONES AND PARTRIDGE The honest lovers of liberty will, we doubt not, pardon that long digression into which we were led at the close of the last chapter, to prevent our history from being applied to the use of the most pernicious doctrine which priestcraft had ever the wickedness or the impudence to preach. We will now proceed with Mr. Jones, who, when the storm was over, took leave of his Egyptian majesty, after many thanks from his courteous behaviour and kind entertainment, and set out for Coventry, to which place, for it was still dark, a gypsy was ordered to conduct him. Jones, having, by reason of his deviation, travelled eleven miles instead of six, and most of those through very execrable roads, where no expedition could have been made in quest of a midwife, did not arrive at Coventry till nearly twelve nor could he possibly get again into the saddle till past two, 
for post-horses were not now easy to get, nor were the hostler or post-boy in half so great a hurry as himself, but chose rather to intimate the tranquil disposition of Partridge, who, being denied the nourishment of sleep, took all opportunities to supply its place with every other kind of nourishment, and was never better pleased than when he arrived at an inn, nor ever more dissatisfied than when he was again forced to leave it. Jones now travelled post. We will follow him, therefore, according to our custom, and to the rules of Longinus, in the same manner. From Coventry he arrived at Daventry, from Daventry at Stratford, and from Stratford at Dunstable, whither he came the next day a little afternoon, and within a few hours after Sophia had left it. And though he was obliged to stay here longer than he wished, while a smith, with great deliberation, shooed the post-horse he was to ride, he doubted not but to overtake his Sophia before she should set out from St. Albans, at which place he concluded, and very reasonably, that his lordship would stop and dine. And had he been right in this conjecture, he most probably would have overtaken his angel at the aforesaid place. But unluckily, my lord had appointed a dinner to be prepared for him at his own house in London, and in order to enable him to reach that place in proper time, he had ordered a relay of horses to meet him at St. Albans. When Jones therefore arrived there, he was informed that the coach and six had set out two hours before. If fresh post-horses had been now ready, as they were not, it seemed so apparently impossible to overtake the coach before it reached London, that Partridge thought he now had a proper opportunity to remind his friend of a matter which he seemed entirely to have forgotten. What this was the reader will guess, when we inform him that Jones had eaten nothing more than one poached egg since he had left the alehouse where he had first met the guide returning from Sophia, for with the gypsies he had feasted only his understanding." The landlord so entirely agreed with the opinion of Mr. Partridge, that he no sooner heard the latter desire his friend to stay and dine, than he very readily put in his word, and retracting his promise before given, of furnishing the horses immediately, he assured Mr. Jones he would lose no time in bespeaking a dinner, which, he said, could be got ready sooner than it was possible to get the horses up from grass, and to prepare them for their journey by a feed of corn. Jones was at length prevailed upon, chiefly by the latter argument of the landlord, and now a joint of mutton was put down to the fire. While this was preparing, Partridge, being admitted into the same apartment with his friend or master, began to harangue in the following manner. "'Certainly, sir, if ever man deserved a young lady, you deserve young Madame Western. For what a vast quantity of love must a man have to be able to live upon it without any other food as you do. I am positive I have eaten thirty times as much within these last twenty-four hours as your honour, and yet I am almost famished.' for nothing makes a man so hungry as travelling, especially in this cold, raw weather. And yet I can't tell how it is, but your honour is seemingly in perfect good health, and you never looked better nor fresher in your life. It must be certainly love that you live upon. "'And a very rich diet, too, Partridge,' answered Jones. "'But did not fortune send me an excellent dainty yesterday? Dost thou imagine I cannot live more than twenty-four hours on this dear pocket-book?' "'Undoubtedly,' cries Partridge, "'there is enough in that pocket-book to purchase many a good meal.' Fortune sent it to your honour very opportunely for present use, as your honour's money must be almost out by this time. "'What do you mean?' answered Jones. "'I hope you don't imagine I should be dishonest enough, even if it belonged to any other person besides Miss Western.' "'Dishonest!' replied Partridge. "'Heaven forbid I should wrong your honour so much. But where's the dishonesty in borrowing a little for present spending, since you will be so well able to pay the lady hereafter?' "'No, indeed. I would have your honour pay it again, as soon as it is convenient, by all means.' but where can be the harm in making use of it now you want it? Indeed, if it belonged to a poor body it would be another thing, but so great a lady, to be sure, can never want it, especially now as she is along with a lord, who, it 
can't be doubted, will let her have whatever she hath need of. Besides, if she should want a little, she can't want the whole, therefore I would give her a little. But I would be hanged before I mentioned the having found it at first, and before I got some money of my own. For London, I have heard, is the very worst of places to be in without money. Indeed, if I had not known to whom it belonged, I might have thought it was the devil's money, and have been afraid to use it. But as you know otherwise, and came honestly by it, it would be an affront to fortune to part with it all again, at the very time when you want it most. You can hardly expect she should ever do you such another good turn, for fortuna nunquam perpetuo est bona. You will do as you please, notwithstanding all I say, but for my part, I would be hanged before I mentioned a word of the matter. By what I can see, Partridge, cries Jones, hanging is a matter non longe alienum a scaviole studius. You should say alienus, says Partridge. I remember the passage. It is an example under communis alienus immunis varis casibus serviant. If you do remember it, cries Jones, I find you don't understand it. But I tell thee, friend, in plain English, that he who finds another's property and willfully detains it from the known owner deserves, in foro conscientiae, to be hanged, no less than if he had stolen it. And as for this very identical bill, which is the property of my angel, and was once in her dear possession, I will not deliver it into any hands but her own, upon any consideration whatever. No, though I was as hungry as thou art, and had no other means to satisfy my craving appetite, this I hope to do before I sleep. But if it should happen otherwise, I charge thee, if thou wouldst not incur my displeasure for ever, not to shock me any more by the bare mention of such detestable baseness. I should not have mentioned it now, cries Partridge, if it had appeared so to me, for I am sure I scorn any wickedness as much as another, but perhaps you know better, and yet I might have imagined that I should not have lived so many years, and have taught school so long, without being able to distinguish between fas et nefas, but it seems we are all to live and learn. I remember my old schoolmaster, who was a prodigious great scholar, used often to say, Polly matete cry town is my daskalon, the English of which, he told us, was, that a child may sometimes teach his grandmother to suck eggs. I have lived to a fine purpose, truly, if I am to be taught my grammar at this time of day. Perhaps, young gentleman, you may change your opinion, if you live to my years, for I remember I thought myself as wise when I was a stripling of one or two and twenty, as I am now. I am sure I always taught alienus, and my master read it so before me. There were not many instances in which Partridge could provoke Jones, nor were there many in which Partridge himself could have been hurried out of his respect. Unluckily, however, they had both hit on one of these. We have already seen Partridge could not bear to have his learning attacked, nor could Jones bear some passage or other in the foregoing speech. And now, looking upon his companion with a contemptuous and disdainful air, a thing not usual with him, he cried, Partridge, I see thou art a conceited old fool, and I wish thou art not likewise an old rogue. Indeed, if I was as well convinced of the latter as I am of the former, thou shouldst travel no farther in my company. The sage pedagogue was contented with the vent which he had already given to his indignation, and, as the vulgar phrase is, immediately drew in his horns. He said he was sorry he had uttered anything which might give offence, for that he had never intended it, but nemo omnibus horis sapit. As Jones had the vices of a warm disposition, he was entirely free from those of a cold one, and if his friends must have confessed his temper to have been a little too easily ruffled, his enemies must at the same time have confessed that it as soon subsided. Nor did it at all resemble the sea, 
whose swelling is more violent and dangerous after a storm is over than while the storm itself subsists. He instantly accepted the submission of Partridge, shook him by the hand, and with the most benign aspect imaginable, said twenty kind things, and at the same time very severely condemned himself, though not half so severely as he will most probably be condemned by many of our good readers. Partridge was now highly comforted, as his fears of having offended were at once abolished, and his pride completely satisfied by Jones having owned himself in the wrong, which submission he instantly applied to what had been principally nettled him, and repeated in a muttering voice, "'To be sure, sir, your knowledge may be superior to mine in some things, but as to the grammar, I think I may challenge any man living. I think, at least, I have that at my finger's end.' If anything could add to the satisfaction which the poor man now enjoyed, he received this addition by the arrival of an excellent shoulder of mutton that at this instant came smoking to the table. On which, having both plentifully feasted, they again mounted their horses and set forward for London. CHAPTER Fourteen: WHAT HAPPENED TO MR. JONES IN HIS JOURNEY FROM ST. ALBANS They were got about two miles beyond Barnet, and it was now the dusk of the evening, when a genteel-looking man, but upon a very shabby horse, rode up to Jones and asked him whether he was going to London, to which Jones answered in the affirmative. The gentleman replied, I should be obliged to you, sir, if you will accept of my company, for it is very late and I am a stranger to the road. Jones readily complied with the request, and on they travelled together, holding that sort of discourse which is usual on such occasions. Of this, indeed, robbery was the principal topic, upon which subject the stranger expressed great apprehensions but Jones declared he had very little to lose, and, consequently, as little to fear. Here Partridge could not forbear putting in his word. "'Your honour, said he, may think it a little, I am, but I am sure, if I had a hundred-pound bank-note in my pocket, as you have, I should be very sorry to lose it. But, for my part, I never was less afraid in my life, for we are four of us, and if we all stand by one another, the best man in England can't rob us. Suppose he should have a pistol, he can kill but one of us, and a man can die but once. That's my comfort.' A man can die but once. Besides the reliance on superior numbers, a kind of valour which hath raised a certain nation among the moderns to a high pitch of glory, there was another reason for the extraordinary courage which Partridge now discovered, for he had at present as much of that quality as was in the power of liquor to bestow. Our company was now arrived within a mile of Highgate, when the stranger turned short upon Jones, and pulling out a pistol, demanded that little banknote which Partridge had mentioned. Jones was at first somewhat shocked at this unexpected demand. However, he presently recollected himself, and told the highwayman all the money he had in his pocket was entirely at his service, and so saying he pulled out upwards of three guineas, and offered to deliver it. But the other answered with an oath, that would not do. Jones answered coolly he was very sorry for it, and returned the money into his pocket. The highwayman then threatened, if he did not deliver the banknote that moment, he must shoot him, holding his pistol at the same time very near to his breast. Jones instantly caught hold of the fellow's hand, which trembled so much that he could scarce hold the pistol in it, and turned the muzzle from him. A struggle then ensued, in which the former wrested the pistol from the hand of his antagonist, and both came from their horses on the ground together, the highwayman upon his back, and the victorious Jones upon him. The poor fellow now began to implore mercy of the conqueror, for, to say the truth, he was in strength by no means a match for Jones. "'Indeed, sir,' said he, "'I could have had no intention to shoot you.' for you will find the pistol was not loaded. This is the first robbery I ever attempted, and I have been driven by distress to this. At this instant, at about a hundred and fifty yards' distance, lay another person on the ground, roaring for mercy in a much louder voice than the highwayman. 
This was no other than Partridge himself, who, endeavouring to make his escape from the engagement, had been thrown from his horse and lay flat on his face, not daring to look up, and expecting every minute to be shot. In this posture he lay, till the guide, who was no otherwise concerned than for his horses, having secured the stumbling beast, came up to him and told him his master had got the better of the highwayman. Partridge leapt up at this news, and ran back to the place where Jones stood with his sword drawn in his hand to guard the poor fellow, which Partridge no sooner saw than he cried out, "'Kill the villain, sir! Run him through the body! Kill him this instant!' Luckily, however, for the poor wretch, he had fallen into more merciful hands, for Jones, having examined the pistol and found it to be really unloaded, began to believe all the man had told him, before Partridge came up namely, that he was a novice in the trade, and that he had been driven to it by the distress he mentioned, and the greatest indeed imaginable, that of five hungry children and a wife lying in of the sixth, and in the utmost want and misery. The truth of all which the highwayman most vehemently asserted, and offered to convince Mr. Jones of it, if he would take the trouble to go to his house, which was not above two miles off, saying, that he desired no favour but upon condition of proving all he had alleged. Jones at first pretended that he would take the fellow at his word, and go with him, declaring that his fate should depend entirely upon the truth of the story. Upon this the poor fellow immediately expressed so much alacrity that Jones was perfectly satisfied with his veracity, and began now to entertain sentiments of compassion for him. He returned the fellow his empty pistol, advised him to think of honester means of relieving his distress, and gave him a couple of guineas for the immediate support of his wife and his family, adding, he wished he had more for his sake, for the hundred pound that had been mentioned was not his own." Our readers will probably be divided in their opinions concerning this action. Some may applaud it, perhaps, as an act of extraordinary humanity, while those of a more saturnine temper will consider it a want of regard to that justice which every man owes his country. Partridge certainly saw it in that light, for he testified much dissatisfaction on the occasion, quoted an old proverb, and said he should not wonder if the rogue attacked them again before they reached London. The highwayman was full of expressions of thankfulness and gratitude. He actually dropped tears, or pretended to do so. He vowed he would immediately return home, and would never afterwards commit such a transgression. Whether he kept his word or no, perhaps may appear hereafter. Our travellers, having remounted their horses, arrived in town without encountering any new mishap. On the road much pleasant discourse passed between Jones and Partridge on the subject of their last adventure, in which Jones expressed a great compassion for those highwaymen who are, by unavoidable distress, driven, as it were, to such illegal courses, as generally bring them to a shameful death. "'I mean,' said he, "'those only whose highest guilt extends no farther than to robbery, and who are never guilty of cruelty nor insult to any person, which is a circumstance that, I must say, to the honour of our country, distinguishes the robbers of England from those of all other nations, for murder is, amongst those, almost inseparably incident to robbery.' "'No doubt,' answered Partridge, "'it is better to take away one's money than one's life. "'And yet it is very hard upon honest men "'that they can't travel about their business "'without being in danger of these villains. "'And to be sure, it would be better "'that all rogues were hanged out of the way "'than that one honest man should suffer. "'For my own part, indeed, "'I should not care to have the blood of any of them on my own hands, "'but it is very proper for the law to hang them all. "'What right hath any man to take sixpence from me "'unless I give it him? "'Is there any honesty in such a man?' "'No, surely,' cries Jones, "'no more than there is in him who takes the horses out of another man's stable, "'or who applies to his own use the money which he finds when he knows the right owner.' "'These hints stopped the mouth of Partridge, nor did he open it again till Jones, "'having thrown some sarcastical jokes on his cowardice, "'he offered to excuse himself on the inequality of firearms, 
saying, A thousand naked men are nothing to one pistol, for though it is true it will kill but one at a single discharge, yet who can tell but that one may be himself? End of section 44. Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire, on January 17, 2008.